I wonder, um, I wonder how you view God's discipline. I wonder how you view God's discipline. Usually, we think in terms of someone else, right? We can clearly see sin in somebody else's life and the results that that sin has on them, on their, their family, their jobs, or, or even on them physically in some cases. From a distance, we can look and, and say, man, if they would just repent, if they would just stop doing that. Or, or maybe we can see it in the past. As in we look back on our lives, um, and we can see areas in which God disciplined us in order to conform us to the image of Christ. Although I think that even as, even as Christians, we often miss most of the ways in which God is disciplining us. We don't often look at things in this way. We, we, we cry out to God and say, why is this happening to me? And then not listen for His answers. So often, events that should be seen as God's hand or God's rod of discipline being upon us, they're just looked at as some sort of uniquely American karma, right? Um, I lost that job, but then a few years later, I got a better job. See, it all works out in the end. Maybe you lost that job because you're an idiot and God took it from you. Maybe you're sick all the time because there's, maybe, because there's some sin in your life that you need to repent of. I could tell you from personal and pastoral experience that nobody likes to be told that. Even though it's in the Bible, in several places, in both the Old and the New Testament. In January of 2008, our family moved to Ashton, Illinois from Xenia. I've been a youth pastor at a church there in Xenia for a couple of years um, after I graduated from college. And after a particularly difficult period of ministry there, I connected with a church in, in Rochelle, Illinois. Um, I was looking for an associate pastor and the plan was that that associate pastor would serve alongside the senior pastor for a few years and then transition into the lead role as he retired. That was the plan. Well, 2008 saw an economic downturn. I don't know if you remember. And as a result, by the end of that year, middle of 2009, the senior pastor was no longer ready to retire. This church that we served in together was kind of an old-school, seeker-sensitive church. I've told you a little bit about it before. We had a full rock band to lead worship, and often they were actually pretty good, as rock bands go. They had the volume turned up to 11, drown out the sounds of the, the audience. The lights were dimmed to the point that the older folks regularly and rightly complained. I would put myself in this category today. I was told that I could not wear a tie, which made me want to even harder. And that may explain some of the way that I am today. During the time that I was there, I, I served there for two and a half years. 
I also started to grow theologically. I started listening to pastors who preached through books of the Bible. I started reading books about John Calvin and John Knox and Martin Luther. I started to understand God's sovereignty and the doctrines of grace. And to top it all off, I actually taught through the book of Ephesians in our high school youth group, which was mostly made up of community kids and not church kids. This was a big deal because I was told when I, when I pushed the lead pastor to preach the word and also not lead Joyce Meyer's studies in his small group, I was told that, that, that people could not handle the in-depth stuff. I need to put the cookies on lower shelves was a famous saying. But here are these high schoolers from the community who did not grow up in church, whose parents were a mess and not bringing them to church. They were eating up the book of Ephesians. I was given a wink and a nod when I pushed for church discipline for the serial adulterer whose wife was begging the elders for help. Unfortunately, during all of that time, someone should have said to me, you're right, shut up. Be quiet. Because I began to develop a serious attitude problem toward the leadership of the church, especially the senior pastor. So although I was one of the pastors of the church, I was wrongly not considered an elder, and so I was not invited to the elder meetings. And instead of being able to talk to them about these things, I kind of began to rant and rave and complain quietly to people around me. I started to believe, as many young men do, that I could do the job better than him. At the same time, I started to develop some serious back problems. Serious enough that I went to the chiropractor three times a week for a year. I went to my doctor. I saw a specialist. I would wake up every single morning and have to lie on the hardwood floor in order to straighten my back so that I could walk somewhat upright. We had a gym in the church. And every day after lunch, I would walk for at least 45 minutes in order to exercise my back. And then I would wake up the next day and have to do it all over again because nothing worked. Tension between myself and the lead pastor and one elder in particular continued to grow, as did my attitude problem. And so Chris and I finally came to the conclusion that I needed to resign. I offered to stay on as a volunteer in the high school youth ministry. I loved those kids, but the church was not interested. The old maxim of, of lead, follow, or get out of the way was applicable to me in all of this. It was not my job to lead. I was an associate pastor, and I could no longer follow the lead pastor. And so I got out of the way. We thought we were headed to seminary. And so we put our house in the market, but remember that economic downturn I mentioned? We lived in a small town in the middle of nowhere in northern Illinois, and for six months I couldn't find a job. So I essentially sold everything I could find, all of the, the tools I had collected over the years, any, any valuable keepsakes we could find, and I worked at homeschooling the kids while Chris worked at the local hospital. But that's not the way the Lord has ordered the family. And so we moved back to New Hampshire. Chris's parents 
while I went to work for my father's company and we waited for our house to sell. In fact, we waited almost two years for that house to sell. And when it finally did, we lost a bunch of money and any equity that we had worked on throughout our marriage. But as soon as I resigned from the church, even before we moved from Illinois back to New Hampshire in January of 2011, as soon as I resigned from the church, my back started to heal. We didn't know what the future had for us. But in July of 2010, we left that unhealthy church and went to a healthy one. And I would wake up in the morning able to stand upright. The Lord was doing something to me. To this day, I'm convinced that He used my physical pain as well as the financial loss that we suffered to discipline me to lead me away from not only the bad theology and practice of that church and that whole system, but also away from the bad attitudes and the prideful sin that I was dwelling in. But when I tell that story to people as a way to suggest that maybe, just maybe, they need to repent of some sin in order to find physical healing, I'm often dismissed as, as either not understanding or even, even being a cruel pastor. But certainly, this suffering is not my fault. We're so quick to jump to that conclusion. But again, I, I wonder how you view God's discipline. The psalmist views it like this. Blessed is the one whose transgression, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10 if you're not already there. I want to read this chapter again. We started this a couple of weeks ago, and we really just looked at the, at the opening of it. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came there and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you and your sons with you. 
when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due. From the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. So I am commanded. The breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, and your sons and your daughters with you. For they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifice of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings, the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as it as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy, and has been given you that you should bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offerings and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Well, let's stop and pray again. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your word today. That you would feed us, that you would uh, nourish our souls. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, and that we would rely upon you. Pray that I would decrease and Christ would increase. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, this story, this chapter... It really is kind of a, a sad interruption in the institutions of the, uh, of the Levitical laws. In fact, it's just as sad as when the golden calf was uh, to, the, to the construction of the tabernacle. It was an interruption. It was something that should not have happened, and yet did. Back at that point, God had said to the people of Israel, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He had promised them this. And the people replied, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then a short time later, not long after they said that, and the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He's on the mountain with God. Here, similarly, in the midst of God pouring out his gracious legal requirements for these people of his own possession, here we see another example in a long line of examples of man's propensity to sin and fall short of the glory of God. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. So two weeks ago, we made a couple of observations about the, the opening verses of this chapter. 
just kind of by way of re- review, Dab and Abihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, and therefore inheritors of the high priesthood, they tried to enter a place they were not allowed at a time bringing an offering they were not permitted to bring. They attempted to overstep their bounds, and if they had succeeded, it would have had the effect of bringing confusion and even possibly a, a religious syncretism into the house of the Lord. Syncretism is this, this blending of religions, a mixing of them with the worship of the one true God. Yet because Yahweh is just and holy, he prevented his most holy dwelling place, and as a result, his people, from being so defiled. And so Leviticus chapter 10 is, it's not about, not about his judgment on the wicked per se, but rather about divine judgment poured out on disobedient priests within the household of faith, within the people of the Lord. But it's also about the regulative principle of worship, that God requires his people to approach him in his way. It's about the need of the people of God to be able to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. And so as we work through this chapter, consider the following question. What do we believe about God's discipline of disobedient believers? What do you believe about God's discipline of disobedient believers? Now, as I've said, the first three verses of this chapter we went over in detail a couple of weeks ago. We need to just look briefly at them again so that we can, the rest of this chapter will take us. And so I'd actually include the first seven verses and, and call this section God's swift judgment. God's swift judgment, the first seven verses. L- let me read this again. I think it's 10, just verses 1 to 7. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and off- offered unauthorized before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. A fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, and as Moses had said, and Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Now, having read that, see if you agree with this statement. See if you agree with this. God insists that his ministers follow his regulations and codes in matters of service and discipline. God insists that his ministers follow his regulations and codes, his laws. Is that true? 
The Lord has just laid out extensive and detailed commands for how his people were to approach him in worship all through the opening nine chapters of this book. He explained how they were to bring offerings, how the priests were to make the sacrifices and and offerings acceptable to the Lord. Just in the previous chapter, he'd ordained the priests into the ministry. And remember, there's, there's actually 27 chapters in the book of Leviticus, so there are many more laws to come. And they get good after this chapter, trust me. It's not even to mention the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. So he isn't done. He isn't done giving them his law. Yet instead of waiting for further instructions, Nadab and Abihu jump the gun and bring unauthorized strange fire. And as a result of their disobedience, they themselves were consumed by the fire of the Lord. The wages of sin is death. And truly, as the book of Hebrews explains, our God is a consuming fire. Well, while Aaron held his peace in the face of the the death of his two sons, Moses has to think quickly. And so he instructs two of his cousins, which means that they were also Levites, but they were not priests. That's important. He instructs them to remove the bodies and take them outside the camp. It's important that it was these two and Elzaphim priests were not to be ceremonially contaminated by death. But what's probably a a bigger emphasis in all of this is that Moses was reminding his own family that their ministry as priests was much bigger than their own personal grief. We know this because after he commands the removal of their bodies, he then commands Aaron and his two other sons, so the father and brothers of the deceased, he commands them not to mourn, but rather to continue their work as priests. Look at verse 6 again. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation." Listen to what the Lord commands later in chapter 21, verses 10 to 12. These are commands for the priest. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose or tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies or make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. That's exactly what's going on here. The priests have to remain holy. They're in God's house. Does that sound harsh? Does it sound harsh that Moses would say, don't, don't mourn. Keep working. You've got more to do. Don't stop. They just They just saw God strike down their brothers, Aaron's sons, in front of them. And Moses says, hey, you got work to do. Keep working. You've got a job to do. You need to do it no matter your circumstances. Listen to what the Lord does to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 24, 
verses 15 to 18, this, this happens. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says. So this is what the word of the Lord says to Ezekiel. Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban. Put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Some things are bigger than us. Some things are bigger than us. And their responsibilities, both as priests and Ezekiel's responsibility as prophet, was bigger than their feelings. Bigger than their grief. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that there's a time to mourn and a time to laugh. A time to, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And this was not time for either. The anointing oil was upon them, he says. This was a time for sacrifice. This was a time for worship. And it was their acceptance of God's discipline. And we know that they accepted this because they were obedient to what Moses told them. It was their acceptance of God's discipline that the people needed to see. The people of God who were given permission to weep and wail, to mourn, The people of God who are on the outside looking in, literally outside the tabernacle, looking in, see all of this happen. They are given permission to weep, to mourn. But they need to see. They need to understand that worship, worship trumps tragedy. And even in some cases, family. Hypothetical. And I'm not trying to heap uh, shame on anybody or anything like that. But if you lost everything on a Saturday, would you get up Sunday morning and go to church? Would you proclaim as Job did? You think of um, the tornadoes in the south that come through on Friday nights or Saturday nights, and they destroy a whole community, including churches. You can, you can see, if you've ever watched any of the videos, you can see videos where, where you can see that it clearly was a church. Often on Sunday morning, that church doesn't know what else to do, and so they go to church. They can't go in the building, but they'll stand outside and they'll sing, and they'll pray. Would you be able to proclaim, as Job did, naked I came from my mother's womb, and Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's continue into this next section because the Lord issues a very pointed and very specific warning here. This is God's warning. Verses 8 to 10. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Now this this right here, these few verses, this is the only passage in the entire book of Leviticus that the Lord directly addresses the high priest, Aaron. That seems significant. 
This is the only place in all of Leviticus where God directly speaks to Aaron. Usually it's Moses. Remember, Aaron's mind at this point must have been reeling. Mine would have been. He's just lost two sons in front of him. At this point, the Lord clearly has his attention. He's speaking directly to him. And he's calling, in doing this, he's he's calling all of the priests to pay particular attention to this set of commands. And he begins this with that warning. Aaron and his sons, that means his descendants after him, who will hold the office of high priest, they are forbidden from drinking wine or strong drink before going on duty in the tent of meeting. Now, I know that we land on different places in this room on the consumption of alcohol by Christians. I'm fine with landing on different places there. I don't don't care about that. But that's not what this is about. This is for a specific people, the priests, at a specific time when they go into the tent of meeting. Now some commentaries, some commentators uh, on this passage have argued that this must have been the issue behind the sin of Nadab and Abihu. They'd been drinking. And at first I disagreed because I don't believe God is reactionary in his making of laws like we are, right? So, so for example, in Youngstown, Ohio, I had to look this up. In Youngstown, Ohio, it is illegal to ride on the roof of a taxi. You, you understand that that is a law because someone was doing it probably in their late teens, early 20s, probably a male. Probably they got hurt. Probably maybe they were even killed. But God generally doesn't make laws like that. But the more I studied this, the more I've come to think that it's actually possible that the Lord had to say, you know what, no drinking on the job for the priests. Regardless, He gives three reasons for giving this law. The first is this. It's similar to the law in Youngstown, I would guess. So that they would not die. (laughs) So that they would not die. See, wine and strong drink have enough alcoholic content that they were able to make people drunk. And as Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Listen, drunken priests are more likely to make mistakes. You could probably use any word there for priests. Drunken people are more likely to make mistakes. But what are these guys doing most of the time? They're killing animals with sharp knives. They're building and maintaining fires. It's almost like this section goes without saying, right? But God has to say it. This is is not trivial work. They were frequently in contact with the Lord's holy things. And he takes these things seriously. Additionally, in Deuteronomy 17, we read that the priests would make legal decisions and judgments. So they had to be clear-headed. This just seems like total common sense, right? And yet even uh, today, we need labels that say things like, do not operate heavy machinery when you're on this, whatever it is. 
You'd think that by the year 2023, mankind would have evolved to the point where we don't need these things anymore. And yet still every day we read of drunk drivers and accidents and et cetera, et cetera. Well, the, the second re- the first reason is that they would not die. The second reason that the Lord says this is so that they could, they could properly distinguish between ritual categories. Look again at verse 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. In Israel, there were, there were three basic ritual categories. The holy, the clean, and the unclean. The common isn't really a ritual category. It just means anything that isn't holy. But the point here is that it was vital for the priest to keep a clear mind so that he would not defile the holy tabernacle with, with various impurities. This is going to become an issue near the end of the Old Testament when the people of God would would try and bring animals for sacrifice that were impure. They had various blemishes. The priest was to keep a clear mind so as to not allow this to happen. He was to guard and protect the holy place and the holy things of God. And And then the third reason is verse 11. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The priests were not only responsible for the offerings and sacrifices, they were also called to judge and teach the people God's law. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 9 through 11, it gives us a little more detailed instructions. And so speaking to the people directly, the law states this. You shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. So again, here is why this section is given. God requires his ministers to safeguard their ability to make clear judgments as they lead God's people. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus taught that issues of law and obedience are matters of the heart. They're not merely outward actions. So this is not simply about alcohol, right? This is about being sober-minded. Consider the requirement of elders from Titus chapter 1. Paul says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The The Lord protects and provides for his people, and he still requires his ministers to be sober minded. Well, after this, you can imagine After seeing this happen, you can imagine that the rest of the priests, the rest of the the Levites, and even the entire nation is now gripped in fear. Is this the end of the priesthood already? Will God just consume us? 
And so Moses gives them some further instructions. Verse 12, Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due uh, from the Lord's food offering, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved that shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. So after the Lord's warning to Aaron, Moses turns to him and, and to his two other sons, and he gives them instructions for how to handle the remaining portions of grain and fellowship or, or peace offerings. The point here is that Aaron and his family, notice that his daughters are included there in verse 14. The priest's family were to eat the holy offering in a ceremonially clean place. That's what's mentioned here. But only the priests themselves can eat in the most, uh, the most holy offering in the holy place. That is beside the altar. Now, don't get too bogged down on that. Most of those instructions have already been given earlier in Leviticus. Moses is repeating them here in order to, to essentially say this to them. Look, in light of what just happened to Nadab and Abihu, make sure you perform all of the rituals exactly as the Lord commanded so that you don't die. Make sure you do this exactly as the Lord commanded. But the problem is that they hadn't already. Verse 16. Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, their surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. You can almost hear the exasperation in Moses' voice as he says this. See, according to the instructions of chapter 6, this sin offering should have been eaten by the priests, but, but Eleazar and Ithamar, evidently they burned it up instead. I'm guessing, this is just a guess, okay? I'm guessing that this offering started burning on the grill when they turned and were watching what was happening to Nadab and Abihu. I'm guessing that that's what happened. It's just a guess. But I'm guessing that they were so stunned that they stopped doing what they were supposed to do and they were just standing there, probably with their mouths hanging open, shock and disbelief because their brothers had just died. Regardless, Moses sees this as the younger brothers repeating the sins of the older brothers, as them disobeying the Lord's commands. Moses was concerned through all of this, that proper procedure had not been followed because the priests, they should have eaten this most holy offering in a holy place. Otherwise, the Lord would not accept it. And this was especially important because this offering was given to the priests in order to take away the sins of the whole community, in order to remove their guilt. This was a way to make atonement 
And so it had to be offered in the right way in order to be accepted by God. You can see why Moses is so upset. He's gone, he's gone, to, he's gone to bat for them on so many occasions. God had said to Moses, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. And Moses pleads with God, remember your covenant promises. Moses has gone to bat for these people so many times. He has pled with God not to destroy them, and yet it looks like they've ruined it all again. And it's at this point that Aaron finally speaks. Verse 19. Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Life was coming at them fast. Maybe death, we should say, was coming at them fast. And Aaron has to explain to a, to a possibly panicking Moses, he has to explain that since priestly sin is involved here, Nadab and Abihu sinned, because that sin is involved here, it didn't seem right to eat the meal. Would the Lord have been pleased to accept an offering where the priests were no longer um, forgiven and atoned for? They're, they've sinned in the process of bringing an offering. Would God have accepted that offering? Would the Lord have been pleased if they had eaten the meal? See, if the sin offering was only brought on behalf of the people, then yes, it should be eaten. But right here, it's the priests who had sinned, and so a different procedure was to be followed. We're not going to get into this now, but if you turn back to the first couple of verses of chapter 4, you can see the procedure for when the priest sins. That's what Aaron is appealing to. So what's happening here is that Aaron is demonstrating, and and Moses agrees that he is sober-minded and that he knows God's law. In the face of a highly intense situation, Aaron steps up and proves that he is ready to function as the high priest of the people, an office to which he has just been ordained. Now let's go back. Because the question I asked you to keep in mind at the beginning was this. What do we believe about God's discipline of disobedient believers? I can tell you right here as I've studied this for a few weeks now. I do not know why God decided to take the lives of Nadab and Abihu and yet spare others who are demonstrably more wicked than they. I don't know. I know why he took their lives, because the wages of sin is death. I don't know why he spares others. I also don't know why God would spare me and allow me to still be in ministry to this day. I don't know, except God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. I know this. I know this. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so I would say, the very next verses say this. I would say this as a charge to us. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
ultimately, the Lord is continuing to build his church. He is conforming us to the image of Christ. He is disciplining us and molding us and shaping us in order to purge us from our sins so that we might better reflect the image of God to a lost and dying world. So let me conclude this morning with a passage from the end of the epistle of James. James writes, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We need to hold fast to God's word knowing that he is faithful even when we develop terrible bad attitudes. Even when we are not, he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that you have not struck us dead for our sin, but rather have poured out your grace upon us. And in fact, Christ died for our sins. But it doesn't make any sense that a, that a holy God would send his only begotten son. That Jesus, the son of God, God the son, the second person of the Trinity, would become the propitiation for our sin. Until we understand that God is love. And that he loves us to the point of sending his son. And in this we rejoice, Lord. We pray that we would accept your discipline, that we would be conformed to the image of God, that we would repent, that we would pray and ask for forgiveness. Lord, that if, if any of us are sick, weak, ill because of sin, that we would run from that sin and run to Christ for salvation. Lord, we know that so much of the sickness around us that we suffer with is not because of our sin, but we do know that it's because there is sin in the world. But Father, I pray that we would not be so arrogant as to think that it's not because of our sin, but that we would repent and believe. Father, we thank you. We pray as we come to your table in a moment to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ, that we would remember these things. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.